go ahead and jump in and read Luke chapter 20, verse 9. Talking about Jesus, he went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when the people heard this, they said, may this never be. Jesus looked at them directly and he asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. Uh, The key to unlocking the meaning of this parable actually comes in the eight verses that precede this parable. In those eight verses, Jesus is teaching in the temple. And the religious leaders in Israel are deeply offended by Jesus. They're offended by his teaching. They're offended by his ministry. They're offended by the following he has. And so the mouthful of sarcasm, they ask him, By whose authority are you doing these things? Things like forgiving people and healing people and teaching. Whose authority? By whose authority are you doing these things? Now, Jesus doesn't answer their question, but he does tell this parable. And right away, the fact that Jesus starts this parable with an owner of a vineyard and his tenants signals to us that Jesus has picked up on the theme of their question, the issue of authority. And more specifically, the tenants in this parable's rejection of the landowner's authority. I think it's fair to say that there's something in us, something in our nature that gets very touchy about authority. Uh, Children start to probe the limits of their parents' authority. By adolescence, your kids are no longer testing your authority. They're in full-blown rebellion against your authority. The good news is that by college age, the authority against which they rebel isn't usually their parent as much as it is the establishment, which presumably means corporate America, the government, the patriarchy, whatever it means. But no matter what stage of life you're in, authority never ceases to be a touchy issue. Even as you move into adulthood, in the workforce, you quickly realize that the quality of your life, the quality of your family's life, can be drastically affected by the personality and the temperament of your boss. I mean, right, a boss can either be a bane or a blessing as an authority figure. My point in saying all of that is just to say that from our earliest days all the way into adulthood, there's something in us that is very touchy about the issue of authority. And this is the very touchy issue that Jesus is dealing with in this parable. I want to break this parable down into three parts. I want to look, first of all, at the problem. What's the problem? Uh, in this parable. Then I want to look at the escalation. How does this thing escalate? And then third, we're going to end with the twist. The problem, the escalation, and the twist. All right, let's start with the problem. If you had to summarize the problem in this parable, 
How would you summarize it? Like, what would you say is the problem in this parable? I think one way that you might summarize it is this, that you have tenants in this parable who are acting like owners. Tenants who are acting like owners. Okay? I don't think the nature of the tenant's relationship to the landowner is too di- terribly difficult for us to understand, even though we're reading this parable over 2,000 years after it was told. Certainly, Jesus' listeners understood they were very familiar with the nature of the relationship. Wealthy, absentee landowners were very common in the Roman Empire. Tenant farmers were, were paid to, to work their land, and at harvest time, the tenants got paid, and the landowner received his annual return on his investment. That's just how it worked. Except in this case, the tenants reneged on the terms of the contract, and they refused to pay the landowner. In fact, in an incredible act of disrespect, they don't just send the servant back empty-handed. They give him a beating for good measure. And not just one servant. but They do this to three of the landowner's servants. And here's the thing that would have really been shocking to Jesus' listeners. Is the patience of this landowner. You know, some, sometimes landowners back then did have to deal with rogue tenants like this, but they didn't handle it like this landowner. Some of them had literally had hit squads to, to deal with rogue tenants. I mean, they didn't play around with these people. They would, they would show up, say hello to my little friend, and they would just, it was over. Like, they didn't play around. The shocking thing about this parable is the patience of the landowner. He sends one servant, and then he sends a second, then he sends a third. This is unheard of patience on the part of the landowner. Now listen, Jesus isn't telling this parable because it's story time at the temple. We know from verse 19 that the religious leaders understood that this was a shot across their bow. Jesus uses well-known themes in this parable from Israel's prophets in the Old Testament who often referred to Israel as Well, they refer to Israel as a vineyard, as God's vineyard. The prophets described how God in his mercy and patience sent prophet after prophet after prophet to Israel's leaders to bring them to repentance. But Israel's leaders refused to listen and literally did what Jesus is describing here. They beat God's prophets to a bloody pulp. So the vineyard owner in this parable represents God. The vineyard represents Israel. And the servants represent God's prophets. Guess who, guess who the tenants in this parable are? Guess who? The religious leaders. You see, they're not asking about Jesus' authority out of a genuine heart of concern for God's people. They're not, they're not caring for the nation of Israel like good tenants care for an owner's vineyard. No, they're, 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 they're not interested in producing spiritual fruit out of the nation of Israel that brings glory to God. No, like a, like a prosperity gospel preacher, uh, they abuse their position to line their pockets. They crave power for their own sake. They lust for the adulation and the praise uh, of the people whom they are to serve. And so hiding behind their religiosity and their skepticism about Jesus is nothing more than a desire to protect what they have foolishly come to believe is their turf. Just like the tenants in this parable. The religious leaders are acting like owners instead of tenants. But here's the thing. Don't think for a moment that Jesus is speaking only to these religious leaders through this parable. 
Because Jesus is telling us that this is part of our nature too. As human beings, to act like owners instead of tenants. See, here's the thing. People try to get out from underneath this in all sorts of creative ways. But the Bible is really very, very clear that you are a tenant. I am a tenant. God created you. God created me. He gave you a body. He gave you a personality. He gave you an emotional life. He gave you skills, talents, abilities. Everything you have is his. It's all his. Even the oxygen that you are using to stay alive is his. You are a tenant. Now, tenants have a responsibility to the owner, don't they? You can't just use this life God has given you, this body God has given you, these skills and talents and abilities that God has given you, whatever power you have, you can't just use this any old way you want to. You're not your own. You're just a tenant. Like Whatever success you have had in your life, you can't say, I accomplished all of this. It's all mine, and I will do what I want to do with it. You can't do that because you couldn't have had that success without the life, without the body, without the mind, without all the gifts and talents and abilities that God has given you. You can't do it. You can't say, I will use my body however I want to use it, and no one can tell me how I can and can't use it. You can't say it. Your body is not your own. You're a tenant. You're not an owner. You can't use your sexuality however you want to use it because you're a tenant, not an owner. You can't use your mind however you want to use it because you're a tenant, not an owner. You can't use your power any way you want to use it because you're a tenant, not an owner. God is the owner. You are just the tenant, and you have a responsibility to the owner. But it's part of our nature to mistakenly believe that we are the owner. And so like the religious leaders, the problem is that we are tenants who act like owners. Now let me ask you a question. How do you like that? How do you like what I just told you? How do you like being told that you're a tenant, not an owner? And that contrary to popular belief, you can't live just however you want to live. You can't do with your mind whatever you want to do. You can't do with your body whatever you want to do. You can't do with your sexuality whatever you want to do. You can't do with your power whatever you want to do. How do you like being told that? What emotion does that create in you? Hold on to that for just a moment. Hold on to that emotion for just a moment. Because I want to move now from the problem to the escalation. From the problem to the escalation. And let's see... If we can't give that emotion that you feel when you're told that you can't do just whatever you want to do with your life, let's see if we can't give that a name. The landowner sends the tenants a servant. The servant gets beat up, sent back with nothing, sends another servant, same result, sends another servant, same result. Finally, the landowner says in verse 13, I will send my son whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. See, this has to do with authority. They will respect his authority. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir. They said, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. The violence escalates here, doesn't it? It goes from beating up these servants to killing the son. They beat one up, then two, then three, and then they kill the son. Now, because we understand that Jesus is directing this parable at the religious leaders, we know he's actually predicting his own death here. This is exactly what the religious leaders are going to do to Jesus. They're going to kill him. But there's a point that Jesus is making here about all of us that we need to see. 
The point that Jesus is making is that being told that you're a tenant, that you can't just live your life any way you want it, that you can't just do you, the point that he's making is that that's infuriating. So you want to be an owner. You, you so want to be an owner that the fundamental disposition of your soul toward God is anger. Every single human being. Fundamental disposition of your soul toward God is anger. It's rage. It's hatred. That's the name of the emotion you feel when you are told that you're a tenant, not an owner. Now, you won't admit that. Like, I know you won't admit that. Right now, you're sitting there going, he's wrong. Remember, it's not me that's telling you this. It's Jesus that's telling you this. The fundamental disposition of your soul is anger toward God. Don't, don't listen to me. Listen to the Bible. Here's what the Bible says. Romans chapter 8. The mind governed by the flesh, in other words, the natural part of you, the natural instinct, the natural mind, is hostile. Is hostile to God. Your natural disposition, disposition toward God is hatred. There is a contempt An anger toward God in you that directs your life, that controls your life. Beneath all of your self-pity, beneath all of your tendency to play the victim, beneath all of your self-righteousness, all of your doubt about the existence of God, all of your refusal to believe that the Bible is truth, all of your rejection of Christ's claims, beneath all of that is rage toward God because of his rightful claims as the owner of your life. You don't want to be a tenant. You want to be an owner. And this rage manifests itself in in at least three ways. It hides behind these three things. The first one may be very surprising to you. Who's Jesus directing this parable at? Who gets so angry at him that they want to arrest him and they will ultimately have him killed? Who is it? It's religious people. One of the ways hatred for God is expressed is through religion. Religion says, I believe in God, but the God that the religious person believes in is a God whom they create and who owes you when you obey. It's a a clever way of making yourself an owner. But if you've defined the God you worship, then the God you worship is a product of your imagination, which makes you the owner. And I have to tell you that when the gospel of Jesus Christ is made clear, religious people often get very furious because it doesn't allow them to define God in their own terms. It requires that they come under the cross of Jesus Christ, and that is infuriating to religious people. One of the ways hatred for God is manifested is through religion. Here's another one. Hatred for God is also expressed through individualism. In other words... I will live my life the way I want to live my life. I do not submit to any truth except my own truth. I define my own reality. That is a rejection of God born out of hatred for his claims over your life. Even if you say, well, I don't believe in God. It's still rejection of God that's born out of hatred for God and for his claims over your life. Here's the third way that it is often seen. I'll spend a little more time on this one. It's it's one of the ways that hatred for God is expressed is through intellectualism intellectualism. It's not wrong to think. It's not wrong to use your mind. That's a great thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart or your mind and all your soul. But what many people do is they they turn to the great thinkers, the philosophers of human history who've concluded that there is no God and you harbor your rage there, hiding it under the mantle of intellectualism, which 
Here's the thing. If you were intellectually honest with yourself about the inconsistency of your beliefs, intellectualism wouldn't be the worst thing in the world because it could ultimately lead you to Christ. But in the name of intellectual thought, many people who reject God on the basis of intellectualism ironically choose not to think about the ultimate conclusion of their beliefs. See, I might, I might not agree with some of the great philosophers throughout human history, but I tell you what, I can't appreciate the intellectual honesty of some of them. For instance, Nietzsche argued that because there is no God, you are the owner of your life, and his conclusion was that if there is no God and if you're the owner of your life, nothing that you do matters. Whether you live a life of social compassion or whether you live a life as a homicidal maniac makes no difference because there is no God and therefore nothing matters. Now, I don't agree with him, but I can appreciate the intellectual honesty. He says if there is no God, the logical conclusion is nothing that you do matters. Live how you want. I appreciate the intellectual honesty. I don't agree but I appreciate what he's saying. Ayn Rand came to praise the virtues of selfishness because if there is no God, you are the owner of your life. Nothing matters, so you might as well live for yourself. I appreciate the intellectual honesty. Most of you, most of you who hide under the mantle of intellectualism would never, would never say something like that. But that's where she came to. Bertrand Russell concluded that we must build our lives, listen to this, upon the firm foundation of unyielding despair. If there is no God, not, nothing has any meaning. So we must build our lives on the foundation of unyielding despair. I appreciate his intellectual honesty. Don't agree with him. I think his premise is flawed. But if his premise were correct, his conclusion is correct. Sartre could not resolve how to affirm human value if he denied ethical absolutes. See, at least these philosophers were intellectually honest enough to say that if there is no God, there is no basis for meaning in life, no basis for saying anything is right or wrong, no basis for saying that something is an injustice, no basis for living a life of virtue. Atheism, in whatever form you choose to label it, is an untenable belief for anyone who thinks it out to its logical conclusions. If you want to hide your rage behind intellectualism, at least be honest about your conclusions. Jesus is telling us something that we don't want to admit about ourselves. That there's a rage that dwells within us at the claims of God on our life. We want to cling to our illusion of independence, that we are owners, not tenants. And it infuriates us that God tells us that we are not owners and that we are just tenants. That's infuriating. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll admit that. There's a twist. There's a twist that's coming. And it's fascinating. I don't have a lot of time to go into this, but at the end of the parable, the owner comes to the vineyard and he kills the tenants, and he gives the vineyard to others. And Jesus' listeners respond, may it never be, they say, which is the strongest way possible, by the way, of expressing the rejection of an idea in the Greek language. May it never be, they say. And the reason that they say this is that they understand that Jesus is telling them that God is going to reject Israel nationally and that the Gentiles are going to become stewards of the once promised kingdom of God to the nation of Israel. 
That's what they understand. And Jesus says that the cornerstone that the builders rejected, he's referring to himself, this is a metaphor for himself, that the cornerstone that the builders rejected will become the capstone or the cornerstone of the kingdom of God. And, and, he, and he says you can either build your life on the cornerstone or you can be, you can be crushed by it. But here's what he's saying. He's saying the religious leaders of Israel are going to reject Jesus And along with the Roman Empire, they're going to have him crucified. And they're going to do this out of their hatred for God. But, and here's the twist. Here's the twist. The very hatred for God that will kill Jesus will become the very way in which which God slays the hatred that you and I have toward him. Let me say that again. The very hatred for God that will kill Jesus will become the very way in which God slays the hatred that we have toward him. In other words, on the cross, Jesus became the hatred of man for God. And through faith in Christ, our hatred for God can be healed. That's the ironic twist of this whole passage. That somehow God in his great wisdom and in his great mercy finds a way to redeem us, to slay the hatred that is in us. And he does it, he does it through the very hatred that kills Jesus in the first place. That's the twist. Now you can respond to this in a couple of positive ways. The first, I have to tell you, is counterintuitive. The best way to respond to this passage of Scripture is to be very honest with yourself and be very honest with God and admit that deep down inside of you, you resent You feel contempt for God's claims on your life. Denying that does you no good. Don't, see, don't walk out of here today consoling consoling yourself with the thought that you disagree with me about the contempt that you have in your soul for God because I'm not the one that's telling you about that. Jesus is the one who's telling you about that. I'm just telling you what he tells you. It won't do you any good to deny that reality. Uh, Our staff has been reading a a book in our chapel on Thursdays, and there's this particular phrase that really stood out to me uh, in the book. I underlined it, made notes of it, exclamation points outside of it, all of that. The author says this. He says, there's no greater disaster in the spiritual life than to be immersed in unreality. In fact, the true spiritual life is not an escape from reality, but an absolute commitment to it. See, we won't bring spiritual, social, and cultural renewal to the city of Evansville and beyond by being people who deny reality. It's hard to admit that there is hatred for God in you. It's easier to hide behind your religious moralism or your individualism or your intellectualism, but it's always healthier to acknowledge reality. That would be a great way to respond to this sermon. A second way that you could respond to this parable. And this is the one I'm going to close with. Is to turn your anger into praise. I know that sounds incredibly cliche, incredibly churchy. To turn your anger into praise. I know how that sounds. But listen to me. Some of you here today are angry at God. Because something hasn't gone the way you think it should. That's, that's how tenants who act like owners respond. 
You think you know what's best for your life. And when God doesn't come through, you're angry. You feel hopeless. Maybe you feel even depressed today. I want you to know that the people who wrote the Psalms were people just, just like you, just like, just like me. They were, they were people with hopes and, and dreams and, and aspirations and, and they had issues and they had problems and they had trials and they had tribulations and when things didn't go the way they thought they should go, they also often very, got very angry toward God. But their solution to their anger and despondency wasn't to stay in their anger and despondency, but it was to turn it into praise. Why don't you just listen to this as, as, as we close. Listen to this. This is from Psalm 22. This is the psalmist. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out but by day, but you don't answer by night, but I find no rest. But the psalmist doesn't stay there. Listen. But I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Turns that anger into praise. And you see, the value of that is that praising God reminds us that we're not owners. And it lifts us out of the despair that comes from the unreality of believing that I know what's best for my life. And it enables me, again, to trust the God who knows me better than I know myself. And it's no coincidence, by the way, that this was the very psalm that Jesus turned to when he was on the cross. Psalm 22, do you recognize those words from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the psalm that Jesus turns to. Jesus says in this parable that you either build your life upon the cornerstone, which is Jesus, or you will be crushed by the cornerstone. Jesus became God's enemy on the cross so that you wouldn't have to stay one. That's the twist. That's the gospel of reconciliation through faith in Christ. God himself, in the person of Jesus, became the hatred of God so that you and I wouldn't have to live in that. How could you not trust a God like that? How dangerous could it be to give your life to a God like that, to entrust everything to a God like that who loves you so much? that he would die for you. You're the tenant, yes, but you have an owner who loves you so deeply, so wants the best for you, that he died on the cross for you so that you would not have to stay his enemy. That's the God that you worship. That's the God who is your owner and for whom you are a tenant. Would you bow your heads with me for prayer? Lord Jesus Christ, it's very difficult for us to be honest with ourselves, to be honest with you, to acknowledge the hatred that is deep down in our souls for you, the enmity, as Romans 8 says, that is there.
because of your claims on our lives. We want to do with our lives what we want to do. We don't like the fact that you would tell us. We find all sorts of ways to get out from underneath that reality, and yet it's still there. We harbor our hatred towards you and all sorts of things that sound so much better than they, than they really are. Lord, I pray that you would enable us today to be as honest with you as we possibly can <coughs> about that rage that dwells within us towards you. Lord, I pray also that you would enable us to turn our praise, excuse me, our rage, our hatred, our anger into praise. Praise for you, God, who know what's better for us than we, than we know ourselves. And that we would be able to trust you in that. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love for us. And we acknowledge your truth this morning. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.